Hey, you guys. All right. We're going to get our nerd on tonight. Get your Bibles out. You're going to need them. Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. What a great set of worship with Roxy and the gang, audience of one. Good to hang out with you guys. Touch my shoe. Bingo. Okay. Here's what uh, it says. Now, we'll start with the basics, which is the book of Daniel isn't about Daniel, right? Is this confusing? A book about Daniel would seem like it'd be about a guy named Daniel, but it's not. The book of Daniel is about a guy named yeah, and tonight I'm going to show that to you. It was really cool to have Q&A with you guys this morning, and then uh, it was cool to have you guys show up at 1.15 in Cedar Chapel to ask more questions, and one of the most, <laughs> Harry, thank you, one of the uh, most pressing, important, and I think repetitive questions that I get as an apologist in modern day culture is, how do we know that we can trust the Bible? So tonight I'm going to be doing both a little bit of a gospel message, but inside of it, a really cool way to show why we believe that we can trust the Bible. So I know what Harry's doing is really interesting. He set up a thing. So he's going to get a whiteboard because I'm going to be doing some uh, nerdy stuff on it tonight. It's going to be fantastic. Harry, do we have a marker? I forgot about that. Hopefully we do. If not, we'll just write on it with Sharpie and then we'll have to get a new board. Here we go. Daniel chapter 6. Again, the book of Daniel is actually about... Yeah, absolutely. 10 points of Gryffindor. Here we go. Now, mo- thank you, Mrs. Uh, so most of us know the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And if you don't, you at least know the story of Danielle in the piranha pit from this morning, right? Uh, the new, a new king comes in, Belshazzar, and Belshazzar says uh, his name literally means Baal's going to help protect my throne and my kingdom. So you just replace one for the other. And when Belshazzar comes to power, the satraps and rulers once again want to kill Daniel because the king likes him. So they say, well, you know, they trick him. You should make a decree, right? Because you're kind of the god of the province. So wouldn't it be fair to say if we find anyone worshiping some other god that they should be put to death? Uh, Fairly reluctantly, Belshazzar, not thinking about Daniel, says, yeah, that's a good rule. And he's convinced that everyone's going to go with it because no one wants to be, right? They're Babylonian. We'll convince them to be Babylonian, right? At this point, like we talked about night one, you get taken away from your home country. They've, they've been working on them to become Babylonian. They should all be there by now, except for a guy named Daniel. Daniel prays to his, to his God. <laughs> he's caught. And while he is caught, he is brought before the king. The king throws him into the lion's den, even though he doesn't want to because he finds no guilt in him, and then he is ultimately, thank you, Joseph. Thank you, Ben. Nice. Beautiful. All right. This is a whiteboard. Okay. Appropriately named. All right. So the story continues. Daniel is thrown in the lion's den, and then it, this is kind of the gauntlet is thrown down, right? If, if the God of Daniel, they, they throw him in the cave, they seal it with a rock, the governor puts his seal on the tomb so that no one disrupts it, and then after some time, they come and find that he is unharmed. Now, that's the story. I, I, I feel like there's enough there 
and there's a lot to cover tonight. We're going to be deep in scripture tonight. What I want to show you is something interesting. Pretend you never heard the story of Daniel, okay? And instead, I told you this. Look in your Bibles, Daniel chapter 6. Let's, let's find Jesus in the story. Here we go. If I told you, beginning in verse 2, that the beginning of the story was a man who was part of a trinity of three, here's what the verse 2 says. With three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. So Daniel is one in a part of three. He is, as you would say, one in a part of a trinity. Verse 4 says this, At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel. So we find a group of people who try to falsely accuse this guy because they couldn't find any actual way to kill him. So people trump up charges in order to kill someone who's actually innocent. The next thing that happens is they could find no corruption in him. We will never find any basis for charges against this man. So if I told you that there was a story in the Bible where a man who was part of a trinity was found innocent, but people around him hated him, so they trumped up fake charges against him, but the governor who was over the province looked at him and said, I don't find this guy guilty of anything, but the people say, we do, kill him. So they bring false charges against him. Continuing, then Daniel goes away in verse 10 and it says he prays three times. There's another story in scripture where a man who's about to be put on trial goes away and prays three times also, if you haven't heard about that. He's also considered in the Old Testament the Lion of Judah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in the same way that Daniel also is an exile from where? From Judah. So we get a man from Judah, falsely accused, one of three, who's put on trial. No charges can be filed against him. He's found innocent, but the people continue. He is falsely accused. He's then thrown into a cave that a stone is rolled in front of it. The governor seals it shut so that no one touches it. And the next day, then after he's sealed in the tomb, miraculously comes out and he is not dead. If I said that's a story in the Bible, you might say that story's about Jesus. That's the story of Jesus. One part of a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit comes to planet Earth from the tribe of Judah, long foretold in the Old Testament. He is brought before a council of religious elite and they say, kill him. The governor says, we find no charges against this man. So they make up fake ones. He goes away to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane three times. He's betrayed by his friend Judas with a kiss. He's then brought before the pro-council. The governor washes his hands and say, I find no fault with this man. So they crucify him. They place him in a cave. They roll a stone in front of it. The governor puts it's a seal on it, and miraculously, here comes Jesus resurrected. Now, the difference between the stories, Daniel is spared and Jesus isn't spared. Daniel is only spared because Jesus isn't spared. The punishment that Daniel deserved, Jesus took on himself. The story of Daniel is not about Daniel, it's about Jesus. I want to show you even further, and this is where only 3% of you deep nerds are going to care, but it's also where a lot of you have asked the question, this is an important question. You say, well, why should we trust the, there's all these other books. There's the Koran, there's the Bhagavad Gita, there's the Upanishads, there's the, the Book of Mormon, there's um, you know, Marxist literature, there's Harry Potter. How do we know that the Bible with all these books is accurate? Or as someone asked me today, there's all these other religions. Why are you convinced that the Bible is the right one? This is a great question. Now, God could have just come down to earth and said, I'm God, you can believe me or not, take it or leave it. But there's something interesting takes place. If you're built like me, you're kind of skeptical of everything. If you're built like me and someone, and your generation should be skeptical of everything, 
Y'all, like, you guys can't get the truth even if you beg for it. No one will give it to you, right? Every media channel you turn on has an agenda. Every TikTok video is made by someone that has an agenda. Everyone's pushing ads, and your social media accounts are plagued with people who are pushing fake narratives, right? That's what your account's full of. It's not real stuff you go through. It's whenever you're looking so good, you post it, right? And then you post, you're like, I'm not looking cute today, so that all your friends will go, yes, you are, Brittany. You're looking so good, right? Your whole world is fake, right? Like, it's just this, like, cardboard cutout world. And it's a bummer because it's broken our individual spirits. Now, you ask the question, why should we trust the Bible? You've got all these other things being thrown at you. I want to demonstrate for you how the Bible helps people like me, and if you're skeptical, people like you. It doesn't just sit there and go, take it on blonde faith because that's what we do here in the South. That's not what it is. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says you can test me. Names, dates, times, places, locations, they're all accurate. And one of the ways that the Bible demonstrates its validity, one of the ways that the Bible from the pages of Scripture screams that it's true at you, if you're willing to listen, is this. 1,960 times in the Old Testament, someone, hundreds if not thousands of years ahead of time, says, let me tell you what's going to happen in the future. These are called prophecies. 1,960 times, someone, thousands of years before Jesus is born, puts pen to papyrus and says, when Messiah comes, when Messiah shows up, here's what he's going to do. When Messiah shows up, here's what it's going to be. Did you know that Jesus was foretold to be born in a town of Bethlehem before the town of Bethlehem existed? Did you know that it was decreed hundreds of years ahead of time that a man named Cyrus, with all the Babylonian exiles, would one day send the Israelites back to rebuild their city hundreds of years before it ever took place? Did you know that this happens 1,960 times? And you might be thinking to yourself, well, who cares? What if someone later on changed it? I'll bet that's what happened. Someone later on put the prophecies in so that they could correlate. Here's the problem, friend. History disagrees with that statement. Let me tell you what, just to show you this one thing. In 1947, a guy was in the uh, village of Qumran in the ancient Near East. This is, this is, I'm gonna ask you to go with me on this one for a couple of minutes, and here's why. You're always gonna say, is there proof that the Bible is true? Is there evidence that God is real? Is there anything that I can tangibly hold on to to show me that the Bible should be trusted? I'm gonna give this to you. I'm gonna hand it to you. And there's 1,959 other examples. I'm gonna give you one patent one because we're in the book of Daniel. But I really want you to focus on this so that you can carry this with you, okay? In 1947, a guy was herding goats in Qumran and he threw a rock into a cave to try to get a goat out of the cave because he couldn't reach up to where the goat was. So he grabs a rock, he throws it, and he hits a jar. That jar breaks. That kid, he's about 13 years old, goes up in the cave and he finds the most miraculous discovery of the 20th century. It's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. There is a whole cave full of scripture dating back to 250 BC when a group of Essenes who wanted to preserve the text of scripture diligently copied the original text and then hid them in a cave so that when foreign invaders came in, they couldn't destroy Christian scripture. They couldn't destroy Holy Scripture. So in 250 BC, these things were tucked in a cave and they remained untouched until 1947 when modern archaeologists have now taken them, unrolled them, superimposed them, translated them, and shown that this part of the book of Daniel, along with Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, 
were all in the cave in 250 BC, which means no one touched any of these scriptures from 250 BC to 1947 AD. Do you know what happened between 250 BC and 1947 AD? Jesus was born. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was resurrected. That means no one can change the prophecies, right? So if I said, you, pick a number between 1 and 47 million. Go. 47 million? I knew you were going to say that. Is that impressive? No, because he told me the number before I said it was. Now, if I said, choose a number between 1 and 52 trillion. Hold on. Let me write it down first. What is it? Two? I guess three. I was one off, but it is what it is. If I had nailed it, first of all, I'd be a witch and you should stone me to death. But secondly, the difference is if you are able to take all these prophecies, bury them in the ground, leave them untouched, and they still come to fruition, that should change things. So why is the Bible different than all the other? None of the other ancient books do anything close, remote. They don't even claim to. They don't even try to because they're not divine. You would have to be crazy to try to write a book that's false about God talking to people and put prophecy in it. In fact, some belief systems like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses have tried and they failed so miserably that it has historically, they've gone, hold on, I'm getting new information. Not 1935, 1945, right? The Mormons believe that God told them that, the, that a Mormon, one of the Mormon prophets was gonna be president by the year 1950. Well, it didn't happen. Then they're like, oh, 1960. And they just kept changing it. The Bible never faults on this. 1960, and they all come perfectly true. I'll give you an example of one because they're not just big, vague, generalized things like the future will be warm. They're very specific. They're so specific that I wanna show you one of these right now. If you turn to Daniel chapter nine, some of you are gonna think this is boring. I get it, I totally get it. But would you at least, if you're not willing to listen, at least stop saying, we don't know the Bible's true, okay? So either engage with the conversation and give good rhetoric and repartee or stop saying dumb stuff, okay? Because I'm gonna show you one of 1960 examples of when the Bible specifically prophesies in the future. The book of Daniel is written in 540 B.C., we have copies of the book of Daniel that were preserved in the ground in 250 BC, 250 years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. And we didn't even, they went untouched until 1947. And this is what is on those scrolls. This is the prophecy that was made. Daniel chapter nine says this, uh, verse 25. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, okay? So it says, it gives us a starting point. When Jerusalem is rebuilt, which takes place on Nisan 1 in the year 444 BC. How do we know that? Because the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2 tells us the exact date that the wall began to be rebuilt. So Daniel predicts this. He says, from the moment the walls of Jerusalem begin to be rebuilt. So he tells us when to start counting. Verse 25. Until the anointed one, who's the anointed one? Jesus. What's the book of Daniel about? 
Jesus, the anointed one, is the exact same word that the Old Testament uses for Mashiach, which means the Messiah, the coming king, the anointed one, Jesus. When does Jesus, this is a little bit tricky, when does Jesus first proclaim and let it be publicly declared that he is the coming king of Israel? What day in the church calendar does this take place on? It's called the triumphal entry. He comes into Jerusalem and people wave their palm branches and they sing Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. That's the day that Jesus allows everyone to proclaim him as king. Before that, he would heal people and say, shh, 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 don't tell anyone. He would make people who are blind to see and lame to walk and deaf to hear and mute to speak and dead to live. And he would say, keep it quiet until the triumphal entry where he comes in through the east gate of Jerusalem, which is the king's gate, and he says, it's me. I'm the king. I'm the Messiah. I'm the anointed one. So Daniel predicts that the time frame between these two events, which is the beginning of the building of the temple, and we call it Palm Sunday, the original Palm Sunday, which took place on March 30th of 33 AD. So he says, let me tell you the exact distance between these two things before this was rebuilt and before this took place, hundreds of years before. He goes, let me tell you the exact number of days that are going to take place between those two moments. Here's what he says. He says, verse 25, there will be seven sevens and what else does it say? 62 sevens. What's seven times seven? 49. Nice. What's 62 times seven? 434. Nailed it. What's 434 plus 49? 483. So he says, it's going to, from the time the walls of Jerusalem begin to be rebuilt, we're looking for a period of 483 years. 483 years exactly. The problem is, when they did years back in Daniel's day and age, they used a lunar calendar. So we need to take 483 years, and we need to divide it by 360 so we can find the number of days that we're looking for. So... What is, uh, sorry, multiply by that. What's 483 times 360? I'll tell you, 173,880 days. This is specific. Daniel says, when the temple begins to be rebuilt, start a calendar. And 173,880 days later, I'll bet you 10 bucks, Jesus walks into Jerusalem. So, <laughs> That's a big statement. Let's see if he's right. We want to convert this back into a calendar system that we know because we're using Nisan 1 of 444 BC, which is equivalent. March or Nisan 1, 444 is the same thing that we would now call March 5th. So March 5th and Nisan 1 on the lunar calendar is exactly the same. So he's saying on March 5th of 444 BC, 173,880 days later is going to be the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. So... We take this calendar, 173,880, and now we need to divide it by our modern calendar, which is a solar calendar. How many days are in a solar calendar? 
365 and what? 0.2422. So our year isn't actually just 365 days long. It's 365.2422. So when you take this number and you divide it by 365.2422, you come up with a number which is 476 years and 25 days. And when you add to March 5th of 444 BC, 476 years and 25 days, you arrive at March 30th, 33 AD. Perfectly. It says in the text then, shortly after this time, the anointed one will be killed. He will be sacrificed. He enters in on Sunday. He's crucified on Friday. He's resurrected on Sunday. Daniel, sitting in ancient Near Eastern, in the ancient Near East, 450 years ahead of all of this, 550 years before all this takes place, says, let me tell you the exact day Jesus enters Jerusalem. It's buried in a cave. No one can change the prophecy. No one has altered it. The math checks out. Daniel properly predicts it to the day. Book of Mormon doesn't do this. Quran doesn't do this. No other belief system does this, and it doesn't do it once. It does it 1,960 times, and it doesn't miss, okay? So this is just, this is just part of the verification that we can get for why we can trust scripture. Joseph, can you take this big thing out of here? My man. Guys, give it up for Joey. So here's what the point of all this is. The point of all this is this, that Jesus is the centerpiece of all of human history. He's what the book of Daniel is about, but it actually gets more important to you than just this. You see, Jesus isn't just the point of Daniel. Jesus isn't just the point of human history. Jesus is the point of your life. If your life had a reason for being, the reason is Jesus, which means sitting in this room, there are people who trust, believe, and live out that the point of their life is Jesus. And there are those who up to this point in their life have lived as if they were the point of their own life. And today, we're going to finish this time together by explaining the gospel, by talking about what is, how do we fix this conundrum that we talked about last night? How do we have a system in which our perfect God must maintain his justice and all of us, not a single one, is perfect, and yet the, the guest list to heaven, you must be perfect. The guest list to heaven is only one name long, and I'll tell you what, sorry about that, the name on that list is not mine and it's not yours. We are going to walk through, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your Bibles, and I want you to walk through this with me. I want you to get them out. And I want you, maybe you only do this once in your life. But I want you to walk through and see, every time you hear a Christian say the gospel, or the truth of the gospel, or the good news of Jesus, or what is salvation, whatever it is, I want you to see it with your own eyes. I'm not going to emotionally manipulate, manipulate you. I'm not going to tell you some sad story. I'm not going to play Alanis Morissette over the speaker system. I'm not going to show like some sad pictures up there. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to in any way try to engage anything except for your rational mind to understand what we mean when we say, have you given your life to Christ? Are you saved? 
Are you in God's salvation? Are you God's child? Because night one, we made one thing very clear. There is only two camps in all of human history. There is the camp that is under God's wrath, destined for God's wrath forever in hell, and those who are God's children who are destined to experience God's joy, favor, as adopted children of God forever. There's not a third camp. In the salvation story, there's no Switzerland. There's no third party. It's not, there's 47 levels of it. No, there's only two. The Bible's gonna make this very clear for us tonight, and I want you to see it with your own eyes. I want you to read it for yourself so you don't think that I'm making anything up and that you don't get twisted in what it is that Christians believe about salvation. Here's where we're gonna go. The book of Romans is towards the back of your Bibles. If you don't know where that is, God put a table of contents at the beginning of your Bible so that you could find it. The book of Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are four guys' names that tell the story of Jesus. And then the next book is Acts, which is short for the Acts of the Apostles. A-C-T-S, not like battle acts. And then a book called Romans. I am going to ask you to engage with me for the next 15 minutes as we walk through this. I'm going to get you out of here early. And I'm going to end early because I want you to have what I talked to you about at the beginning of the week. I'm going to talk to you right now like adults. I'm going to give you the truth of the gospel like adults. And I'm going to ask you to respond like adults. Now, some of you in hearing this are going to say, this Jesus thing isn't for me. I don't want anything to do with this. I like the way I'm living. I am my own king. I surrender to no one. Like Nebuchadnezzar, like Belshazzar, I'll take my chances on the last day. But some of us in here, we may have been hearing this week new information, right? You've got a bad case. You're not a good person. Not all paths lead to God. There is hell. God is perfectly just. And I have sinned against him in cosmic treason, and treason is always guilty, and the punishment for treason is always death. I want you to all see it for yourself. Romans chapter one. Here's the beginning of the gospel. Is this. Romans chapter one, beginning at verse 18. says this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to us because God has made it plain to us. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that anyone who looks at creation should know that there's a God out there. And he's actually implicating every one of us. He says, what may be known about God is plain to you. So just so you understand that. If you're sitting here in this room and you're saying to yourself, well, if God would show himself to me, I would believe and trust in him. God's response would be, have you looked around? Do you look at yourself? Do you recognize how your body is formed? Do you understand that right now for you to see me, the number of cods, the number of rods and cones and pupil and iris and electrical connections happening in your brain to see me and perceive, do you get all that's happening? Do you perceive actually the way that the world is? So if we're walking in the woods, right, and we stumbled upon this chapel, and I walked you inside, and you said, you know what? I don't really think that there is a God. I don't see any reason to believe that there is a God. And I said, okay, that's a good point. And then I asked you this question. I said, whatever your name is, um, what do you think made this chapel? And you would go, 
what kind of a question is that? And I said, well, go with me. This chapel is, it's a tent, and then it's got a lot of stuff inside of it, right? It's got whatever. But, I mean, at the end of the day, what do you think made it? And you would go, you mean who made it? I go, no, 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 no. What do you think made this chapel? Because I think, here's what happened. First of all, there was some kind of tornado structure, and what it did is it, is it took the bark of the trees mm-hmm, and it started to like slice it ever so thin to create this canvas that we see above us. And then after that, it, it just like filleted up. And then there was beavers in the area and they were cutting down trees. And, and then those beavers started to lay, they start, ooh, the beavers started to lay the foundation of the ground, not on purpose, but because they were trying to, to stop up a dam. And then the deer came. The deer, the deer were the central figures in the whole building of this thing. Because what happened is the rocks that the deer were standing on, they started to tumble. The deer were like, oh my goodness, what's going on? And then here come the rocks in and then the rocks started break apart and that is what we see as like the concrete on the ground and then where did the carpet come come from good good point where the carpet so the the mice started to go well we can contribute here so the mice started making little mink coats from their little mice skin and they that's what the ground is made of and the lights oh the lights you see this this is an this screen you think it's led but it's not it's millions and millions of tiny little bugs that are trapped. And then every once in a while, they decide we're all gonna change color together. And that is where the screen comes from. Right. At what point in there would you stop me and go, are you high, right? Like, <laughs> if you have a brain in your skull, probably about at, I would say beaver, you would go, uh, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You would say, bro, you're insane. What are you talking about? And I would ask you, I would say, what do you mean what am I talking about? What do you think made this place? And you will go, and, and, and you, you might sit there and go, I, I, don't, I think you're asking the wrong question. I think you mean to say, who do you think built this place? And you might say, look, I don't know if it was a, a bunch of guys, a bunch of girls, a bunch of guys and girls. I don't know. I don't know if they were from here, if they were down the hill, if they were from wherever. I don't know much about who did this, but if you think that something this complex was made on accident by forces of nature, you're so dumb. I would go, that's my point. If you can look at a chapel, which compared to you is infinitely less complex, and then look at yourself, which is infinitely more complex, and think this chapel requires a who explanation, but you can be satisfied as a what explanation, you're crazy. If you can look at something like this, like look at that sign over there, what does it say? See that up against the wall? It says exit, right? If you look at that sign, if you, let's say you went to an uncharted area on planet Earth, and you found that sign, and it was laying on the ground, and I asked you, what do you think made this sign? And I said, this is uncharted ground. What would you begin to believe? I think someone has been here. Because with something just that simple, just a sign with lettering like that, you would obviously come to the conclusion that someone intervened here. So friend, how could you look at yourself 
and the DNA that makes you up and the way that you were created and every moment of your life without you thinking anything, the hundreds of millions of processes happening inside your body from the moment of conception to the moment that you are all right now, your heart beating just perfectly, 3.4% blood in your, or salt content in the blood in your bloodstream, everything working perfectly in tandem in order for you to experience life. And on the microscopic level, to the level of like 13 levels of subatomic particles that make you you. Did you know the guy who mapped out the human genome named Francis Collins wrote a book called The Language of God where he said, you can't look at the human genome and not think that God built you. You just can't do it. That guy was the Nobel Prize winner in science. Barack Obama gave him a medal for how brilliant he was. And he wrote a book called The Language of God. In his conclusion, he said, if you think that humans came about by chance, you're so unintelligent, I don't know what to do with you. So, when you look at me and you go, dude, how could you think this was an accident? I look at you and go, dude, how could you think you're an accident? You can't. Because you're more complicated than this whole room is. So if you think you're an accident and this thing also instead was on purpose, you're making a logical error in judgment. You are committing a fallacy called the taxicab fallacy. For those of you who care, most of you don't. Moving on. So, in other words, there is a God. That's the beginning of the gospel. Number two, the second part of the gospel. Turn one page to the right to Romans chapter three. Romans chapter three, beginning at verse 10, says this. There is no one righteous, not even one. No one understands God. No one seeks God. All have turned away. Romans 3.23 says the exact same thing in another way. Romans 3, big number 3, small number 23 says this. For all, that's comprehensive, that's everyone ever. For all have sinned, right? For all have missed the mark of what you were created for and fall short of the glory of God. So what it says right there is the standard of God's glory is Jesus. And when every human who's ever lived stands up against the moral perfection and glory of Jesus... What happens as we stand next to them? Does anyone make the bar? No. For all have sinned and have fallen short of God's glory. Well, that's a problem. Because the only ones who get into heaven are those who are equal to God's glory, who have not fallen short of God's glory. And how many humans who have ever lived have not fallen short of God's glory? One. And it wasn't you. It was only Jesus. That means heaven says... At the gates of heaven, what you're going to find is that the only people who get to come in are those who have not fallen short of God's glory, which means if you've ever sinned, if you've ever lied, if you've ever had a bad thought, or if you were born human, that's most of you, right? The Bible says, into iniquity I was born, I was conceived into it. Because our great ancestors, great, 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 great grandfather was Adam, did you know we actually bear his curse? We are sinful by nature. You didn't even have to wait until you did your first sinful thing as a baby. The moment you were conceived, you were sinful. And you've only made it worse since then. Which means, from the moment of conception, up until now, we have kept making it worse. And yet, the standard of heaven is perfection. And none of us have lived up to it. So what are we going to do? Here's what it says. There is no one righteous, no, not even one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The, 
the gospel starts with really bad news. There's a God. He's made himself plain to you. Look at your body. Look at your soul. Look at your surroundings. Look at everything else. God has been here. But you've rebelled against him. There is no one right with God. That's what the word righteous means. No one is good with God, which means that in our nature, get this, you're not just not good with God. The book of Romans chapter 5, verse 17 and 19 says, you are an enemy against him. So in your natural state, if you haven't surrendered to Jesus, you're not neutral. You are opposed to him. You are at war with him. That's that word enmity all the way back from the book of Genesis. You are at war with your creator. You have rebelled against him in high-handed treason on a cosmic scale. And the punishment for treason is death. We see this in this next verse. Romans 6 verse 23 says this. A few pages to the right. You might be saying to yourself, okay, so what? I'm not right with God. Is that that big of a deal? Okay, so what? I've, I've fallen short of God's glory. What does that mean? Okay, so if you grow up and you get older and you have a job, you will earn what's called a wage. A wage is what you've earned because of your behavior. So if you work at In-N-Out, the behavior might be peeling potatoes, it might be flipping hamburgers, it might be the counter, it might be the main room where you're sweeping up the floors, but your behavior earns you a wage. And whatever that wage is, is what you get paid. So God's using justice language and he's using fairness language. But based on the way that you behave, you've earned something. You have won some sort of a prize. You have earned a wage. And here's what the Bible says. Verse, chapter 6, verse 23. It says this. For the wages of sin is death. Now, when the Bible says the wages of sin is death, it doesn't mean if you've sinned, you're going to experience the same thing that everyone experiences, which is that one day your, your body's going to give out and you're going to experience physical death. The Bible wouldn't say something that silly because everyone experiences death. Everyone. So it's not saying, did you know that if you sin, your body's going to die someday? The word death there is meant to mean something deeper. It's what we talked about when we talked about hell last night. The wages of sin is eternal separation from any business having to do with God. What you've earned from the behavior of your rebellion against God is an eternity separated from all of the goodness of God, which James 1.17 tells us. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. So the, we've earned something by our rebellion. Our rebellion is not costless. It's costly. And what it has cost us is when we meet God face to face, if we are dead in our sins without surrendering to him, God's going to look at us in his perfect and holy wrath and he's going to say, you've rebelled against me. The punishment for treason is death. How do you plead? And if you say not guilty, God's going to go, oh, so you're perfect. Okay, well, let's start a tape of your life. And at the moment of conception, you're already guilty. And you might be thinking, that's not fair. Okay, like he didn't need to go any further, right? Do you really want God showing a, a videotape of every thought you've had just today? Would any of us stand in here and go, I'd be very comfortable with you seeing all the really weird, gross, messed up thoughts I've had just for one day? Of course you wouldn't. 
We can't go, well, that's not fair. I wasn't even there when I was, I didn't even know where I was being. No, guys, we've made it worse every single We have openly rebelled against God. And if we stand before a holy and perfect God and say, I'm not guilty, we're doing the same thing Nebuchadnezzar did. You can judge me. I think you'll find that I'm a pretty good person. I think you'll find that I'm gonna make it in on my own accord. Yeah, I know that the, the, the standard for heaven is perfection. I like my chances. Judge me and see. Well, your judgment is up against Jesus' perfection. And if you're one inch short, except you're miles and miles short, you're spending forever separated from him. Forever. So here's the problem. How does the God of the universe maintain his justice, right? God, you can't get to heaven and you go, God, can you let this one slide? God in his character can't go, I'm gonna let this one slide. Why? Because that's not just, right? Because all treason must be punished if God is going to maintain his perfect justice. So we can't look at your sin and my sin and go, I'm just gonna let this one go. In fact, he must punish it. I, the sin that I have committed, must be paid for. The price of treason must be paid. So how are we to enter into heaven in perfection when we have a treasonous guilt on ourselves that a holy God of the universe must punish by his justice? This is where the gospel comes in. As God looks at us and we in repentance stand before a perfect and holy God and he says, Christopher Hilkin, how do you plead? I'm gonna say, guilty. But before you bring the gavel down on my judgment, I believe that 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty for my sin. I know that I deserve your wrath because I committed treason against you. But Jesus paid the price of that wrath for me. And I don't really know why. But Jesus promised that if I give my life to him and I surrender to him as Lord and Savior, that he's gonna stand in this spot of judgment for me someday and now that day has come. So, Father, with all due respect in you maintaining your justice and your love for me, I would like to call on my substitute now, please. And you will, those who are saved will step out of the seat of judgment and Jesus will step into it. And the full wrath of God meant for you is going to be poured out on Jesus. And as that wrath is finished being poured out, Jesus in his perfection, he says, Dad, check the guest list. And the father goes, it's Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going to go, hey, go ahead. You see, you want to know how I get into heaven? Because when it's my turn to be judged, I ask Jesus to be judged in my place. He is found perfect. And then my righteousness is his righteousness is this fancy word, it's imputed on me. That's the word atoned. In the Bible it says we need God to, Jesus to atone for our sins. That word atonement means cover. I get into heaven behind Jesus as my righteousness. He takes the pain that I deserved, he dies the death in my place, and I get to waltz into heaven because he lived perfectly. We made a trade. He gets treated like a treasonous murderer. I get treated like the perfect son of God. Now, you might be asking yourself, why would anyone make a trade like that? Romans 5 verse 8 says this. Flip one page to your left. Romans 5 verse 8. 
Here's the motivation for the substitution that took place, that will take place. I am gonna meet God face to face one day and I will sit in a seat of mercy and Jesus will sit in my seat of judgment and here's his motivation. 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his, help me out, love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the motivation of the substitution. The motivation of the reason that Jesus would die on a cross that I deserve, that I could walk into the heaven that he has earned, is one reason. It's not because I'm tall. It's not because I'm funny. It's not because I'm cute. It's not because I'm athletic. It's not because you get good grades. It's not because your family's really important. It's only this. My one defense, my righteousness is the saving power of the atoning work. That means the covering work of the cross was that because of his death, burial, and resurrection, when I get to heaven, Jesus covers me, he absorbs the wrath that I deserve, and he walks me into the gates of heaven, standing trial in my place. Why? God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how I get into heaven, even though my name's on the guest list. Jesus is, is and he, it says that he will allow me under his name to enter in. So now you're thinking, hopefully, you're thinking, well, then how do I make the trade? How do I, how, I want to be part of that substitution. I want to give him, I want to say that he paid the price for my, I don't want to stand trial one day. I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. I'm not going to make it. I want him to stand in my place. How do I do that? How do I ask him to do that? How do I beg and plead that his love would be for me as well? Romans 10, flip a few pages to the right. This is the last place we're going to turn tonight. It says this. Romans chapter 10, that's big number 10, small number nine says this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, read it with me, you will be saved. So when we talk about the good news, when we talk about salvation, when we talk about the great substitution between Jesus and me, that's what we mean when we say, are you saved? Have you found salvation? Are you walking with Jesus? Are you a Christ follower? All, that's all the same thing we're saying is have you made the trade of Romans 10 verse 9? Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord of your life and do you believe in your heart that when Jesus was crucified, he paid the price for your sin? If so, you will be saved. Listen to the two parts of that. This is important. First, we believe that when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he paid the price for my sin and that when he came back from the dead, he demonstrated that he has the power to make dead things live again. The second part of that is from here on out, Jesus is Lord of my life. I declare with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Because of this great substitution, I want to live every day for him. My life is not my own. I'm not my own king. I don't live for Babylon. I live for the invisible kingdom of God that is coming for all of humanity. I submit to the great king, the king of Omnia, King Magnus. I submit to him. And whatever he says goes. Does that mean if you become a Christian and you are saved, that you'll never mess up again? Absolutely not. Y'all, I mess up every day. I'm a walking dumpster fire. But here's what's true. 
Even though I mess up, I desperately want for, to follow who Jesus is. I want to become more like him. And when I mess up, I repent and I say, Jesus, forgive me because I failed you once again. But I know that the work on the cross has taken away my sin already and you've already forgiven me because I'm a child of God. Listen to this. If you believe that all people are God's children, you haven't read the text. Romans chapter eight says this. We receive adoption to sonship and adoption to daughtership through the process of surrendering ourselves to him. You may not call out to God as father if you haven't surrendered to him as son and daughter. He's not your father. You're not his son. You're not his daughter. That title is reserved exclusively for those who have surrendered their life, who have received the spirit of adoption to sonship, by which we can, Romans 8, 15, cry out, Abba, Father. Don't get it twisted. There are children of God, and there are enemies of God. The call of the gospel is that God paid the price for us to transfer from being objects of wrath and enemies of God to children of God and objects of his love. The question is, what will you do in response to these things? And this is how we're gonna end up our time. I'm gonna pray for us. And if I, when I'm praying for us, if you for the first time say, I have never made that trade before, I have never surrendered my life to him before, I've never acknowledged that I'm a sinner in need of salvation before, and you wanna do that for the first time tonight, I'm gonna pray this prayer and I'd ask you in your heart to pray it along with me. Then when I'm done praying, I'm gonna ask that if tonight was your first time to do that, that you would stand up and make a public profession of faith like Romans 10 says, to declare with your life that Jesus is Lord. Some of you, when I said you're gonna stand up and declare that Jesus is Lord, got really freaked out because you're like, what will my friends think about me? Listen to my voice. If you can't stand in a room full of Christians with a Christian guy on stage and Christian youth pastors surrounding you and mostly Christian people in the audience, you're not gonna stand when you go back home, so don't even worry about it. But if you recognize that your life is lived for an audience of one and that that is all that matters, then I'm asking you in boldness against the flow of Babylon to stand for the truth that you are a sinner in need of a savior. If that is you, I'm gonna ask you to pray along with me and all of us are gonna pray together in this moment. Jesus, a lot of us in here, maybe we've been around this story for a long time. Maybe this is our first time ever being exposed to the gospel. Maybe we didn't even understand it before. But Holy Spirit, Ezekiel 36 says that you turn our old dead hearts of stone into hearts of warm flesh, receptive to the gospel. And God, I know right now you are even moving in the hearts of many of these students and you're saying this gospel message is for you. You are a sinner in need of a savior. And God, if that's us in this room, we wanna pray this prayer in our hearts to you. If that's you in this room, pray this prayer along with me in your heart. You don't need to say it out loud. He can hear you. God, I've sinned against you. I've, I've sinned against you in the way that I think. I've sinned against you in my attitude. I've rebelled against you. I, I didn't even recognize that you were the king of everything. I don't know why. I've been living my own life. I, I've been, I've committed treason. I have been the hero of my own story. I've rebelled against the things that you've said. I've rebelled against the things that I know you want me to do. I've said no to all of those things, but God, I'm done with it. Tonight I recognize my need for a savior. I recognize that I am a sinner 
in the hands of a God who sees me, but I don't want to be far from you. I want you to be my father, and I want to be your son. I want to be your daughter, and so I'm asking you, motivated by your love, and your promise is sure that you would make that trade with me tonight, that you would take my sin and nail it to your cross, and you would take your perfection and give it and bestow it and cover me with it. And God, I don't know exactly how deep your love for me must go that you would make that trade, but Lord, I accept it tonight for the first time. And I trust that your word is true, that if you were able to overcome the grave, that you have the power to make dead things live, and Lord, that you will do the same for me. So I confess with my mouth that you are the king of my life, and I believe in my heart that when you died and were raised again, that you paid the price for my sins. Lord, I am yours. I want to call you Father, and I want to meet you on that last day and have Jesus pay the penalty for my sin. I give it all to you. So you name me pray, amen. If tonight, for the first time, you said that prayer on the count of three, I'm gonna ask you to stand up. One, two, three, stand up. You guys can have a seat. The reason that we stand is twofold. The first one is you just participated in part of Romans chapter 10. You just declared in front of Babylon, the world that we live in, that you will no longer be known as Babylonian. You are part of the kingdom of God from here on out. Now, Satan's gonna attack you. The world is coming at you. Babylon is gonna try to overthrow the decision that you just made, but you have in this culture stood against the tide of culture, and for that, it's always worth celebrating and always worth knowing, and here's the second reason because it lets us as youth pastors, counselors, staff, to know, to have a follow-up conversation with you after this chapel is over. And it's gonna be a simple conversation. Hey, what did it mean for you that you stood up? We want you to be able to articulate what you heard to make sure that you're comprehending exactly what the gospel is. But I wanna welcome you, those of you who genuinely just said, I'm done with my old life. The kingdom of God is a, it's so much better than Babylon. And the best part of it is the father that we serve. I think you're really gonna like him because he really loves you and he's died on a cross for you. We're gonna finish the only appropriate way, which is worshiping a God who tonight has changed hearts of stone to hearts of flesh and made dead things live again. Would you stand up? Let's stand to our feet and celebrate what God has done.